Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, September 10, 2012. This is episode 977 of the Survival Podcast. And i got a good one for you today. It's a listener feedback show as usual. What's going to be a bit different today? As I'm going to lightning, kind of lightning round a lot of the questions today. I'm going to try to cover a ton more than I usually do. Nut and bolts to the spot, you know, point, uh, no more than five minutes on any topic. And stay, I'm going to stay away from the overall macro economy view today. I have some economic questions, but they're specific, not kind of where the economy's headed, which we all by now should accept is toward the center of the toilet bowl. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is silverandgoldshop.com. I'll tell you what, we're going to talk a little bit. Of, uh, first, first thing we're going to cover today is uh, people uh, investing in something I don't think is a good idea to invest in, but I do I'll tell you what, I think it is a good idea to invest in silver and gold, and silverandgoldshop.com is a great place to do just that. Check them out today. Check out some of their really cool generic silver rounds. They have some really cool patterns and uh, real affordable pricing on them. Remember, MSB, you guys get a discount on those. And consider making them some of your gifts for nieces, nephews, kids, grandkids, things like that this fall. Explain to them how silver will grow in value, just like they're going to grow in value as they uh, as they grow up. I think it'll be something they'll have a lot longer than a typical Chinese plastic toy. Next up today, uh, we have... ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said ShelfReliance, like something you put stuff on, not self, like you yourself. That's because ShelfReliance.com specializes in innovative food storage solutions, allowing you to easily eat what you store and store what you eat by rotating your canned food for you uh, very much the way you would see it done in a, a supermarket. Uh, you'd be surprised at how much stuff one of these racks can hold. It's pretty daggone amazing. Check them out today, ShelfReliance.com. While you're there, check out the Thrive brand of long-term storage food, some of the best-tasting long-term storage food I've ever found. Great pricing, great selection. They ship really fast, too. Check them out today, ShelfReliance.com. Next, I want to remind you about TSPCopper.com. Great way to spread the word about things like the Survival Podcast, the Second Amendment, the real truth about money, and a lot of other really cool things. We even have one for you beekeepers out there, the Honey Pot Coin. Remember, the prices on these are per roll, not per coin. Somebody asked me why is a single copper coin $34. I'm like, it's not. A roll of 20 of them is $34. So check them out today. Remember, MSB, you guys get a really great discount on all the copper there as well. And remember, these TSP Copper coins and all the other copper coins available at TSP Copper are usable as barter exchange currency within the AOCS barter network. Check them out today, tspcopper.com. Next up, please come meet me in Hickory, North Carolina, if you can, at the, the Self-Reliance Expo there. It's going to be awesome. I'm doing two presentations, one on Friday, one on Saturday. Uh, we're having an early meet and greet. All that's been uh, published. I will make sure there's links in today's show notes so you can find all the details on that again. If you can RSVP on Facebook, that would be great. Today we'll get set up uh, fan, uh, event pages on Facebook for the two after-hours meetups. We're going to do uh, one at Amos Howard's Brew Pub and the other one at the Old Hickory Tap Room, one on Friday, one on Saturday. They're both about three miles from the event, so it'll be easy to get to, and uh, I hear the selection's great at both of them, and there's lots of seating and other good stuff like that. So uh, check that out, and I really hope to see as many of you guys as possible at the event. I think it'll be a great expo. And uh, remember, I'm going there to meet you guys, and if you look at somebody and they're talking to me, realize they probably listen to the show, they're a fellow listener. Make sure you don't just talk to me, talk to them as well. 
Uh, next up, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at 20 cents an episode. I'm going to leave it there because, like, like I said, I'm going to lightning round this stuff today and spend as little time as I can on the first one because it's important. Uh, I had some people get in touch with me over the weekend and ask me my opinion of uh, investing in the Iraqi dinar. This has been around for a long time, guys. Uh, and my, my simple short answer is don't do it. But let me give you some reasons why you shouldn't do it. Number one, the whole promise is that the dinar is in an immediate uh, time where it will soon be revalued and strengthened. right? And when that happens, you can make a fortune because you can buy this stuff for next to nothing right now. And you know you can buy a million dinars for 50 bucks or whatever it is. I don't even know. I don't even care. It doesn't matter. Let me say it again. It doesn't matter. Here's why. Number one, they've been saying the same crap since the new dinar was introduced after the American occupation of Iraq. And you know what's happened to it? Absolutely, positively nothing. The next thing you need to know, if you're going to invest in a currency, a low-valued currency of a nation, you do it because it has a nation with a promising future, a thriving economy, and a low debt load. Iraq has none of those things. It does not have a promising future. I'm sorry, it really doesn't. It does not have a thriving economy. Yes, they have lots of oil, but not as much as they need. And three, they're borrowing money just as rapidly as we are on a per capita basis. So that would be a bad investment, even if it was legitimate. Here's the next problem with the Iraqi dinar. If you wanted Canadian dollars, or Mexican pesos, or euros, or... British uh, British pounds, right? Or Brazilian, uh, I think Brazilian uses the real, right? Or you wanted, uh, you know, most currencies out there, there's a significant demand for. You could walk up to a currency exchange window, like at an airport, and you could say, uh, yes, I would like to convert this American money and hand them a thousand bucks into Canadian dollars, please, and they'll just give you the money. You want to do that for Rocky Dinars? Doesn't happen, because there's no demand for it. There's no demand for it. And if you wanted to like play the Forex with it, it ain't going to happen because it's not on the Forex. So it's not easily exchangeable. So the scammers, what they've done with the Iraqi dinar to make you think that it's really awesome is tell you what silver and gold people do, which silver and gold people are telling you the truth. You hold it, you own it, because it's silver and gold. Well, when you hold it in R, you're holding paper. Paper backing a debt, it's used as money. In a fledgling, failing, debt-ridden economy, with an uncertain future. Yay! So, what does that mean? That means whoever you buy your dinars from probably will buy them back from you at a price much less than they sell them to you for. Let me explain something to you about currency. When you're going to do currency exchange, it's about the value of the money itself. So while a silver dealer might say, okay, we pay X under spot per ounce for all silver... And then if you have a really nice coin, maybe we'll pay a little bit more of a premium on it. If it's got a little bit of numismatic value, if you had like a Mint State 60, uh, 69, 1986, I think was the first year of the Silver Eagle, we're going to pay a lot more for that than, you know, a, a 2011 with a few dings in it. But there's a basic pricing formula, right? And the only reason that they price things differently based on condition or what it is, is for collector value. When it comes to currency, it shouldn't work that way. If the exchange rate is X for Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars or U.S. dollars to Australian dollars or U.S. dollars to Mexican pesos, no matter what the money looks like, no matter what condition it's in, no matter what denomination it's in, the exchange would be the same if it's a legitimate currency exchange. That makes sense? 
If you take a wadded up $5 bill or a really nice pressed $5 bill to Walmart, you can buy the same stuff with it, right? Okay, so if you want to sell your Iraqi dinars, this is what your dinar dealer will tell you. They will pay you on it based on how much you're going to sell, the condition that it's in, and the denominations of the bills. I will send you a link in today's show notes where you can see just that on a video of them telling you that. So what does that mean? It's not, it means it's not a legitimate currency exchange. So you're talking about a currency with no market other than the fake market created where the people controlling the market are the only ones bringing the, the, these bills into the United States and selling them to you. It ain't going to happen, and it ain't happened in the past 10 years, and it ain't going to happen tomorrow. Don't invest your money in Iraqi dinars, folks. I've been asked about this a lot. I've talked about it a little. Uh, now I'm telling you, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't believe it, it's all bullshit. I'll put some other links in the show notes today, a great article on this about four, on Forbes, and a consumer alert, uh, from, from the government, uh, explaining these things to you. You can read them, you can watch the video that I'll put up about how to sell your dinars. You can take all that information with what I put, and you can realize that this is a dumb idea and not do it. Or you can choose to believe this is a good idea and do it, and there's nothing I can do to stop you. I'm done with the Iraqi dinar. Let's go to the next one. Here's a great one. I promised to put this uh, up. Uh, this comes to us from Captain Dave in Tallahassee. So he wants to call himself. That's what I'll call him back. Captain David said, uh, I alerted everyone to a great buy on photovoltaic panels at Costco a month ago. Here's the opposite, a blatant ripoff. You hinted the other day about how the solar generators from Solutions from Science are, at the very least, seriously overpriced product. I concur. I'm here to report on the same company's newest book, just released this week, The Big Book of Off-Grid Secrets. Executive summary, I heap scorn and, po and poopy on this book. <laughs> it is the most useless crap I've yet seen in the prepper industry. I'm sending it back immediately and going to tell them to eat it. Stupid me, I ordered the book directly from Solutions from Science and paid full retail and full shipping, total $40, when I could have at least gotten $10 knocked off the shit of shipping from Amazon. And there's a link to it on Amazon. Further annoyance, about half the weight of the package they sent me was reams of printed ads for their other products. Hmm including the damn solar generator. Grr. This book is a scam. It's useless. It's a huge waste of anyone's time and money. Using the word secrets in the title implies you'll be getting useful knowledge not found elsewhere. It's merely hodgepodge of articles already published and not very good articles at that. Some of the amazing secrets, wow, who'd have thunk of it, you can learn from this book. If you see one, a weed, grab hold of it and pull it out on page 108. Avoid all potentially dangerous scenarios on page 171. Use your knife. It was built for that on page 167. In one article, there's just over two pages written on nine useful knots. They list the names of those knots, but don't provide a single illustration so you could recognize one, let alone provide a verbal description of how to tie one. Yeah, this is what you're looking for when you spend your hard-earned money on survival expertise. Quote, when we say dressing knot, we're not talking shirts and pants. Close quote. Page 100. I could go on like this all day as hardly a page goes by without some stupid advice, blatantly obvious factoid, or dim a dim-witted nine-year-old would know. That's just the first half of the book. The entire second half of the book is merely written transcripts of podcasts that you can download for free. The book editor calls these radio shows, so you'll think they're long gone in the rear view, and you won't go looking for them online as a podcast. Here's chapter 55 of the book, and I'm not going to even post this. The entire 220 pages of the last half of the book is already free, enough said. What really mystifies me about Solutions from Science is how these guys continue to portray themselves as devout Christians. Meanwhile, kindly alert your audience. I'm going to Amazon to rip them a new one, Captain Dave. All right, folks, so there you go. There's your scam two of the day. 
the big book of off-grid secrets uh, from Solutions from Science. If you buy it now, you've been warned, don't do it. I'm not even going to post a link in the show notes to where this thing is. I don't want to be responsible in any way, shape, or form for somebody ordering it. But please understand there's a lot of this crap in the industry and use your head and think before you order stuff. Okay, next one here. Um, this is from Kareem. Uh, says, if you were working with a budget of $50 a week, how would you spend it on food storage? And what priority would you make your purchases and why? I would like to know why, no, as this is one of the weaknesses in my preps at the moment, and I would like to hear your input on how to best address this. Uh, the first thing I would do is I would remove any fear, uh, in the short term, and I would go with things that, 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 that sound counter to what I teach every day about eat what you store and store what you eat. Uh, if you're asking this question, that means that you have concern and you need to put the concern to rest as quickly as possible. If you were to go out this week and buy $50 worth of rice and uh, a few buckets to go with it, and next week and buy $50 worth of beans and a few buckets to go with it, and then the next week buy some different uh, seasonings and stuff like that and maybe some pastas and a few cans of pasta sauce and some other things like that and put that away, at the end of that three-week period uh, with maybe some other things thrown in, any type of long-term storable food or, or canned food that you would enjoy eating with beans and rice and, and things like that, you would have a few weeks' worth of at least survival rations. And I would put that all in a bucket, and I would seal it up, and I would stick it somewhere in a nice, stable environment, and I would say, at least I've got that done. At least if I need to rely on, if I'm, I'm not going to starve. And you'd be surprised at how much you could put away uh, with $100 to $150 taking that approach. So that's, that's probably what I would do first if I was deeply concerned about the short-term future. Uh, what I would be more likely to do is just simply do this. I would sit down every week and I would make my shopping list. And next to my shopping list that I would keep right on my countertop, I would put another piece of paper. That would be my eating list. Every single thing that I eat, my kids eat, my wife eats, the dog eats, anything that's on the list that somebody actually eats, because you'd be surprised at how many things sit in your cabinet and don't get eaten and eventually get given away once a year at a church drive, you know, a church uh, food drive or something like that. I'd make the eating list. Anything on the eating list that'll store for six months or more, I would put a star next to. Okay, and when I went to the and I made my grocery list that's sitting right next to it, and I would add anything with the start of that list, whether it was there or not. If it was on the list because I was going to buy some anyway, which it probably is, I'd put a star next to it. And that means I would buy at least two if I was going to buy two. Or if I put down, I'm going to buy, I don't know, let's say Rotel tomatoes, if that's what you like. I don't know. And you were going to buy two cans, and I'd put a star next to the two. That means buy more than two. And every week I would figure out about $50 worth of things that I was on my eating list and my shopping list that I could buy two or three cans of, and I would keep doing that until I built up my pantry very, very deep. And I would now have a pantry with extreme resiliency, redundancy, and stuff that my family actually eats. And I would do that until I ran out of space for that. And at $50 a week, you would, you would, you'll blow your mind at how much you could put away. And, uh, so that's, that's where I would start. Once I built up at least 30 to 60 days, minimum of that, then I might start saying, okay, well, it's not $50 a week I'm really dealing with here. It's about $200 a month. So then I would start looking, More at the true long-term storage food solutions, like Mountain House, providing pantry, Yoders, and things like that. And I might even take $50 one week and go out to the local sporting goods store and buy a few pouches of Mountain House, maybe $25 bucks worth of different varieties that I think I'm going to enjoy. And I would go home and I would cook them and I would try them and I'd go, yeah, I like this. No, I don't like this. And then that way when I kind of scaled up and bought the larger 
amounts of these things, I'd be buying things that we would actually eat. But I would start maybe buying about $200 worth a month of the longer-term 25-year food storage stuff, and I'd start building that up. That's kind of the approach that I would take there. And you can do whatever you want in the middle with it. I mean, I would certainly look at how can you start learning how to preserve your own food, dehydration of vegetables, learn how to can, learn lacto-fermentation. These things I would integrate with it. I would try to create some level of food production. Um, but, I mean, there's your, kind of your startup phase, right? If you're really concerned, put up some rice, beans, and pasta. You, you, you will blow your mind what $200 of that looks like. And you'll realize how the rest of the world lives on so little money because that's primarily what they eat. They eat grain. They eat beans. And because they live on grain and beans, they can survive. It's not good quality food as far as I'm concerned. I think if you eat it every day and add it to the average American diet, you end up fat. And if you eat it every day and you don't add it to the average American diet, you end up somewhat malnourished. But it is a survival ration, right? So I can put that up. And as I bring the other things onto it, my... 30 to 60 days of eat what I store, store what I eat, and in my long-term food storage, and then learning to do self-preservation methods so I can go out to a farmer's market at the end of the season and buy green beans for 50 cents a pound, or even do that at the supermarket when they have a huge quantity of them, and I can dehydrate them and put them up and put them away. Uh, I can build this huge, multi-layered, resilient system. So that's the approach I would take. If you want more on that, there is a uh, great article on the survivalpodcast.com, survival tenant number five, food stored is an exceptional investment. I will put a link in today's show notes to that as well. All right. Um, ben says, uh, Ben from Denver. It's uh, been a little bit. Uh, anyway, my question is, can precious metal be confiscated simply because of the engravings or markings? I found this article. I'll give you a link for Tried looking around the net to see if it's bullshit, or but couldn't find the story. So kind of makes me think it is. But could something like this happen with ACOS? Can the government just decide the stuff is now illegal and we're taking it and melting it down for our own stash? Thank you very much. And the story is, and I'll give you, and this is, this is another story that, that people are just going crazy with. A uh, family in uh, Philadelphia found some gold coins uh, that were uh, part of the uh, gold grab or gold buyback, depending on how you want to call it, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. So the way the story is going around, it's just the government seized gold, just took it, just said, hey, that's that's marked a certain way, we're taking it. No, sorry, the end, wrong. Uh, if you read the article on Russia Today, which I get a lot of great information from, but they've fallen down on their face on this one, it kind of reads that way. What you actually find out if you read some of the other articles on it is what happened is a cashier uh, that bought the coins, purchased them from someone who turned them in, kind of just put them somewhere else and gave them to somebody else. And it ended up in this family's hands. These coins were bought by the United States government from somebody who turned them in as part of the gold exchange. And then they were taken out of the system illegally, ended up in this family's hands, that's what the judge based his decision on. I'm sorry, I don't think that they should have taken the gold from people in the first place. I think the fact they passed a law that said they could do it is, is bull. But I think people also didn't actually have to turn, you know, nobody was ever prosecuted for not turning the gold in. Nobody. It wasn't that they were ordered taken because the coins were ordered destroyed. They were taken because a chain of custody determined in a court of law the coins had actually been exchanged for the new money. Now, of course, it's on InfoWars and the government's coming after your gold. Nonsense, 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 the end, 
Nonsense. Now, real quick comment. People ask me, well, do you think the government will ever seize gold and silver? Listen, guys, this is what people don't understand. It really is. When the government seized gold in the past, they didn't seize gold. That's not what they did. They bought it. Now, they, they screwed people when they bought it. They screwed them by about $15 an ounce, which was almost double the value of the gold. They bought it, and then they let the price float up. $20 an ounce, and they let it float up to almost $35. Bucks. And that's because where it was fairly valued, etc. We all know this. If you want, if you don't know this, you can look up the history of uh, the FDR gold seizure on, on Google. We'll explain this all to you. But we went from a paper currency or from a gold currency to a paper currency. That's why they took the gold. Now we're already on a paper currency. The only place to, the only place to go from here is back to a metallic standard. So instead of, you wouldn't seize, so there's, there's number one. Number two, people won't allow it today. People are not going to put up with it today. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to have some freaking special forces guy rappel off the roof of your house, kick your window in, and get your Roosevelt dimes from you? No, no, no. You know, and if you worry that, well, I'm not going to have this because the government might take it, you don't get to have anything then, right? You don't get to have anything. Because the government could take anything someday. Don't store food, the government. You know, people are telling me now, oh, the government's doing surveys to see how pro well prepared people are. Good! They're spreading awareness. Good! They're finally doing something useful. Good! Oh no, Jack, they're trying to figure out where preppers are so they can come take our stuff. Oh, oh. I, I just, I'm telling you guys, I might sound a little frustrated today. I'm getting a little frustrated today because, look, guys, you got to be less gullible. Now, is there a potential that at some point the government could try to seize metal? Yep. And I say let them try. I say let them try. Um, again, I want you to realize this. Not a single person was successfully prosecuted for not turning their gold in. Not one. That's, that's the facts. Uh, when they were trying to legalize gold in, in civilian hands again, so to speak, in the United States, one of the guys, I can't remember his name, constantly held up a gold bar when he was lobbying for it. He said, here's my gold, come arrest me for it. They never even went after him. You, you really got to start thinking about the fact that this government's got bigger problems right now than whether or not you have some Roosevelt dimes or Washington quarters that are 90% silver. They really do. It's, it's more like that they'll try to go after it through a tax scheme than to take it away from you. If they take it away from you, it doesn't really do them any good. If they tax it, it does them a lot of good. So the way around that is, and this is where you guys need to start thinking a little bit outside the box, private exchange is private exchange, and that's all I can say on that. All right, let's take another one. The big thing to take away from this, though, is once again a story that's come out has been used to mislead you, to make things look... It's already bad enough that this family's sitting on $80 million worth of property, and, and they lost it. But now we got to make it that the government did it just because it's marked a certain way. No. The government did it because, based on a court of law's decision, the, the, the coins were stolen. That's the true story. Let's take another one, like I said. Here's a quick little one that came in from a listener named Cayman. Cayman says, I thought you might be interested in this article. A business school graduate paid off 90K in student loan debt, the student loans, in less than a year. But was it smart? It's on Fox News. It's just a little quick blurb uh, that Fox put on there. Paying it down, Joe Mihalik, a 29-year-old business school graduate, paid off $90,000 in student loan debt in seven months. What the experts say, student loan interest rates are low. It's best to pay off high interest rate debt first, such as credit cards. 
Keep funding your retirement accounts and make sure you have an emergency fund to cover about six to eight months of expenses before putting extra money towards student loans. Other tips, pay, pay private loans first. They are more expensive. Don't cash out retirement accounts. You can earn a higher rate of return in the stock market. Oh, my God. See, this is the problem, and this is what you guys need to learn about going forward and protecting your assets. I'm being completely blunt. I'm being a little bit abrasive with you guys today, but I feel like I need to do it today. Okay, one of the things you need to realize is all of these ass-clown financial liars out there, even the ones that seem like they know what they're talking about, They're talking about this from a historical perspective. What you should have done for the last 50 years. And this assumes, this assumes, ass out of you and me, assume, right? This assumes the next 50 years will be like the last 50 years. If you believe that, you have your head so far up your ass that you can see your heart from behind. Okay? That's, that's real. If you believe the next 50 years are going to be anything like the last 50 years, economically, technology-wise, In any way, shape, or form, your head is up your ass and your entire body's buried in the sand. That's how far below ground and below reality you are. It's not. It's not. And, and anybody that can look at $16 trillion worth of debt, projected to be $20 trillion worth of debt in the next two and a half years, and think that it's going to be the same as it was when we put more debt on the, on the bankroll in the last four, or last, last 12 years than we did in the first 200 years. It just isn't paying attention. We're, we're in for this complete shift. So, number one, it's not going to be there. But let's say that it was. Do you know why paying your student loan debt first would be the smartest thing that you could possibly do if you can get it done? And if this guy did it in a year, clearly he could get it done. It's the one debt you can't escape from. You can never escape from your student loan debt. They will garnish your Social Security wages to get your Social Security or to get your student loan debt back from you. They They will. They really will. If you have uh, credit card debt, and a, a mortgage, and a, a car loan, and you get into a financial situation you just can't get out of, you can dissolve a great portion of that debt through bankruptcy, right? And, and it'll go away. Now, is it right? It depends. Is it a legitimate bankruptcy, or did you just do it because you could? You know, and you figured it was a bad... You know, that's, that's up to you. But at least the option's there. You go through a bankruptcy, you come out the other side, you owe the government and the student loan people as much as you did when you went in. So it's the most toxic debt, it's the most long-lasting debt, and therefore it needs to be removed as soon as possible. And you ain't going to be making more money in the stock market right now. And this high-interest stuff, generally speaking, the best debt to pay first is the smallest one and snowball it forward. But only morons would look at a person who was almost $100,000 in educational debt, who completely dissolved the debt in a year and tell you it was a mistake, And this is what you need to understand. The people you're trusting to tell you how to protect your money, how to make money, how to build wealth, how to preserve your wealth, are the people saying this. These are the people. Let me tell you something that I was just talking about my wife uh, to, 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 about, to, to my wife about recently. Back uh, many years ago, we decided that our son would likely want to go to college someday. And we made the mistake of putting money into a 529A plan for him, which is a tax-deferred educational account, which means he had to pay major interest and penalties to get the money out for anything other than college education. But you could do it, at least. And it's why today I don't recommend those plans. I recommend you create a life establishment fund for your children because you don't know what they're going to want to do in their future. And you can maintain control of that if you don't want to you know, have a 19-year-old kid sitting on $50,000 of cash. 
Uh, you can set it up so that you have control and you can custodial, you know, be the custodial over that account. And uh, yeah, you'll pay taxes on the, the gains or whatever. But that's not really the point, is it? It's saving for school. And you shouldn't be in high risk or even moderate risk investments with money like that anyway. It should be as safe as possible anyway. So there shouldn't be a lot of gains. It should be all about savings. And we were putting away $500 uh, a month for a while to get his uh, account to where he could afford, you know, four years of school basically at no cost to him. And our financial advisor said, you need to stop doing this. And we said, what? He said, you need to stop doing this. You need to put that money in your own retirement account. You've put so much money there already. That's enough to get him started. He can get a loan for school, but you can't get a loan for retirement. Uh, yeah, he got fired. But that conversation has taken place with millions of Americans between their financial liar, oh, I mean advisor, and them. And millions of Americans listened to it. And millions of Americans told Johnny, go get a loan. And now Johnny's sitting on $90,000 worth of debt, $90,000 worth of debt for an education that may or may not actually do anything for him. Apparently for this guy it did. He wasn't Johnny. What was his name again? His name was Joe, Joey. Joey's sitting on $90,000 worth of debt. Joey gets off his ass and pays off his debt. And the financial liars say that was a mistake. Anybody thinks this is a mistake needs a freaking slap behind the ear. Seriously. Good for this guy. Good for this guy, and I hope he has a good future. I hope he makes as much money as he can really, really fast. Because where this economy's coming, he's going to need it. But don't trust these people that tell you stupid crap. Don't tell, trust these people that say, uh, no, Roth's not always the way to go if you're doing a retirement account because you might have a lower tax rate when you retire. They're pretending they know what the tax code's going to be like when you're 65. They don't know the temperature of the air tomorrow, let alone what the tax code is going to be like in 40 years, if there is even anything that resembles the modern tax code. They don't know what the government's going to do to your money in these retirement accounts in the next 40 years. They don't know what rule change. They don't know a damn thing. Take control for yourself. Take control for yourself. These people are pawns in the system and they're designed to talk you off the ledge and keep you fully vested in a system that's failing. This is just another example. Let's take another one. Here's another interesting one. I uh, told you guys uh, a few months ago that it looked like Honduras was going to actually set up private cities. And I think you would call these more accurately small, independent, autonomous city-states. So that within Honduras, the nation, there'll be this city. You call it Jacktopia, right? And Jack will run Jacktopia because I'm the leading investor in Jacktopia. And then anybody that you know I decide can come can come into Jacktopia, including Honduran citizens, to take over certain jobs and responsibilities that investors and, and more skilled labor that are in Jacktopia you know don't want to have. And that Honduras was looking at doing this. And a lot of people said they'll never do it. They've done it. They've done it. They've signed the agreement. There's going to be three of them, and the first one will begin construction in about six months. Uh, so Honduras is doing something that I think that you're going to see more and more developing nations do. These nations are realizing that the best, the brightest, the wealthiest, the smartest, the hardest working people in the world are fed the hell up. They're fed up. They, they, they can't take it anymore. The harder they work the more is taken from them. The more they do, the more they're expected to give. The, the more they build, the greater restrictions are placed on them. And they're saying to themselves, selves, we'd like to bring these people to our nation. The problem is our nation does the same crap their nation does. And we can't just bring them to our nation and change the whole country. 
But we could give them a piece of land that really isn't doing anything, and we could let them build it the way they want to, and we could see how it works, and we could make an agreement with them, and we'd have this little micro-nation within our nation that we'd have this preferential trading agreement with, and it wouldn't cost us anything because they have to make it work on their own. And we could charge them some token, or we could just give it to them. And then our people would have jobs, and there'd be this commerce thing going on, and we could bring the greatest minds and the greatest talents into our nations and let them self-fund themselves because they're actually capable of doing that if we'd give them this little island of autonomy. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. If I didn't have family here, if my wife wasn't dealing already, having a hard time being you know, six hours away from family that has us looking to permanently relocate back, I would sign up and go do this. I, I really would. I think this is like a new version of a new world. And uh, I hope they make it work, but I'll put a link to one of the stories. There's many stories out about it. Uh, here's good news already, though. On Fox News uh, this weekend, this announcement was being talked about in a totally different way. And the question being asked was, do we need to do this in America? And they had some British chippy on. This girl was just dumb. She sounded smart because she had the accent. But it was, I wish I could find a video clip because this, the, she was talking about how the government needs to build roads. There's no one else that can build roads. And the guy that she was kind of debating with, the other talking heads, like, they actually built a lot of private roads over in, uh, in, in Europe and quite a few actually in England. And so you're, in your country, there are private roads with private tolls. And she looked, I, I hate to say it this way, she looked so confused and so messed with, she looks like she was having a hard time going to the bathroom doing a number two. That's the only way it's just like your face was all scrunched up because I didn't understand. It's the government has always built the roads. And it's like, no, no. And she just, dumb. But there, the, the, at least the question was being asked. Should we consider, you know, privatizing more things in America? And of course, all the, all the, 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 the real response from everybody was, it'd be great, but we can't do it. But at least we're asking the question. And the reality is, you have a country going broke. You have a country growing, going broke. You have nation, you have cities. I'm sorry, nations. You have not yet. You have cities going bankrupt. Now, I want you to think about this. Do you know what happens when a city goes bankrupt? All of its bills don't get paid, and it kind of implodes on itself, and it either gets restructured and rebuilt by the same government that destroyed it in the first place, or it kind of goes away. If it's not a, you know, like Harrisburg is going to go through bankruptcy, but it won't go away because it's the state capital. There'll be some way that it's restructured and basically a lot of people will get hurt and then a lot of people won't get paid and people will lose retirement or have it cut and bondholders will get screwed and, and what have you. But one way or another, there'll still be a Harrisburg. But Stockton, California may just kind of dry up and blow away. It, it really might because there's no infrastructure left. Do you know what happens when a private entity goes bankrupt? Another entity comes in and buys out what's left of it and rebuilds it smarter than the way that destroyed it in the first place. Now, I think there's certain components of government that should always be public, so to speak. Law enforcement is, you know, I believe that basically the way society should function is individuals and entities should engage in contracts, and government should see to the honoring of those contracts when they're breached. And I think that that means that law enforcement, judicial systems, and things like that need to have a public area. But I don't think that negates things like private security and private arbitration. So there's no reason that if you and I have a, a disagreement, we can't go to a private arbitrator 
And if we both feel we've gotten satisfaction through that arbitration, then we just don't need to make it a public arbitration. We don't need to go to court. And a lot of contracts are written that way already. Whenever I write a business contract with somebody, I always require a third-party private arbitration prior to any court action. I put it in the contract. You don't want the contract with me, don't sign it. Because all it says is that you and I will agree that some third party is probably better suited to see this clearly than you and I are. We will both take our case to him. He will tell us what we think we should do. And if we agree to that, it ends. And if we disagree and we say that's not going to, we can't, we can't resolve this at this layer, then you can go to court action. But you have to try first. Hmm. Sounds like a good idea. Why don't more people do it? Uh, it's actually in a lot of contracts. And a lot of people bypass it straight away. Um, I've never allowed anybody to bypass it. I've never, if somebody, you know, tries to take something to court, I always cite the, in the, you know, and you know what? Never had a situation we couldn't be arbitrated out if we just sit down and talk about it with a third party that doesn't have an emotional attachment to it. And I, so I think there's a lot of, that can be done with privatization in this country, uh, without giving up the, the, the few things the state needs to be doing. Uh, building roads, You know, in defense of the British chippy, um, I think that that is something that is best done in most instances, not all, but most instances by government. Um, I think that's a, a legitimate function of ensuring the general welfare uh, or, or uh, you know, promoting the general welfare is to ensure commerce. Uh, I think it's constitutionally based. I think it makes sense. And frankly, if they spent their time focusing on bridges and roads and things like that, instead of having crumbling infrastructure, we'd have the best infrastructure in the world. Instead, they spend their time doing things they don't need to be doing. Anyway, I digress. I'm going too long on this. But I do want you to know private cities in Honduras are happening. And I am telling you now that this will not be the last place that this happens. This will continue to happen in other developing nations that need the influx of talent and capital, and finance, and infrastructure. They can't afford it themselves, and they can't alter their government to suit it overnight, so they will give islands autonomy in return for bringing it in. Uh, mark my words, there will be another nation doing this within 12 months. And uh, anybody wants to lay some odds with me on that, a bet on some microbrew or something, let me know. Uh, let's take another one. I promised to do something for you guys last week, uh, th and I'm going to do it today that I think a lot of you were probably shocked to hear, and that was I was going to give you an open-minded uh, group of times when using a credit card might make sense. Uh, I, I still stand by my overall view of credit cards. They're evil. They're the devil. They suck. You shouldn't use one. It's like playing with a snake when you don't know how to play with a snake, and that snake is a deadly diamondback rattlesnake. It might not bite you, but if it does, you're in deep crap. Um, but... Somebody sent me this article, and I have to admit that the, there's a pretty good case here made for six purchases that he says you should always use a credit card for. And, and let me give you a summary of them. Number one, big ticket items. Expensive purchases like refrigerators, laptops, outdoor grills, televisions, and furniture should be bought on credit, providing you pay the bill off at the end of the month. And it, that would be, yeah, you better do that if you can do this. But here, why? For starters, most credit card companies offer additional warranties over and above the store's warranty, and that's totally free. This saves you from being suckered into buying the store's extended warranty program, which never buy the store's extended warranty program. Never do that anyway. Okay, uh, It's a complete waste of your money, which would drive up the purchase price of the item you're buying. In addition, you should ch charge major purchases like these because the price guarantee most credit card companies offer called holders Most of the time, if you buy a big-ticket item, credit card companies will refund you the difference if you see it for sale within 60 days of purchase. 
That price protection comes in real handy when your refrigerator suddenly stops working. You need a new one ASAP, but you don't have the time to price compare and wait for a sale. I don't know how valid that one is. If somebody out there does this routinely, let me know. But I think it's more about like the same person that you bought it from puts it on sale, that type of thing. I, I Since I don't use credit cards, I'm not f uh, real familiar with that one. But if you can get your warranty extended for no cost and you pay the bill, okay, I can see that that might work. Home and maintenance or improvements. A big fear of mine is hiring service providers like landscapers and construction workers to make repairs and improvements to my property. I always worry that no matter how many pictures they show me their work, Uh, their work or how good the rating they receive on Angie's list, I'll get screwed in the end. To protect myself, I always charge these purchases when I use a new service provider. This way, if the bushes the landscaper puts in a week ago die, with the new flooring the handyman uh, installed starts to buckle a month later, I have some way of getting my money back. If I were to pay these types of providers in cash, there would be nothing I could do if something goes wrong and their work down the line. Charging these types of purchases on my credit card gives me a form of protection. If the work is unsatisfactory to me, I can call my credit card company and perform a chargeback and dispute the purchase. That means I'll get my money back and the unscrupulous service provider can't screw me over. Okay, I am sold on that one. I am actually, I have actually never thought about that. No one can say Jack Spirigo doesn't have an open mind. If you want to get a credit card and never use it except when you hire a contractor and pay it off immediately as soon as it's over with and have the, the protection that comes with being able to issue a chargeback for service and labor and things like that when there's, it's, it's an industry where so many people have been screwed over. Absolutely, I'm sold. I, I, I'm not being facetious. I really am. That's, that, That airline points, nonsense. The cashback, nonsense. That I'm, I'm okay with. Three, fragile items. Ever buy something, then break it almost as soon as you get it home? Happened to me years ago when I bought a new cell phone. I think it was a Motorola Razor. If you broke a Razor, you've done something wrong. That was a really tough phone, those old Razors. It was new to the market. I was extremely excited to get one and looked like one of the cool kids for not a lot of money. I brought it home from the store. Within 24 hours, I had dropped it in the toilet. Oh, that'll do it. <laughs> not my finest moment. Thankfully, my credit card company helped me out. I was able to get a new phone, not totally free of charge, but for less than it would have cost for me to buy an entirely new one. If you buy something and break it fairly quickly afterward, your credit card company can help you recover some of the purchase price and damages. It may not be ideal, but at least you're able to get some money back. I think that's when we really need to look at the credit card you're using and what kind of protection they have. Uh, number four, rental cars. So we've learned by now not to buy extra rental car insurance that companies like Alamo, Hertz, and Enterprise and Budget try to push into us into when we rent a car. Yeah, don't do the extra insurance. Uh, if you pay for the rental with your credit card, you should be covered in most instances. Most major credit cards come with no-cost rental and car collision and theft protection. If you have protection and get into a wreck, your credit card company will theoretically pick up the tab for anything your auto insurance doesn't cover, like your deductible and towing charges. So if you don't have personal auto insurance, it may even reimburse you for the entire cost of damage. All Visa Diner card, Clark Club, uh, Diners Club card holders get it automatically, while MasterCard, Discover, and American Express offer it only to its elite card holders. Maybe. I mean, if you carry good car insurance, eh, I, I I use the debit card all the time to rent cars, and I never have a problem. And I've never had an accident with a rental car, but I know someone that did, and in that situation, and other than your deductible, you're you're covered. And if you carry good car insurance, it's it's redundant. But okay, I could if you already have it for the landscaper, then I could see using it that way. 
Monthly recurring charges. A lot of people have a fear of signing up for a gym membership because they're afraid they'll never get the company to stop charging their account if they ever want to cancel their membership. Anytime you sign up for a service that needs to charge your account each and every month, you should use your credit card. Doing it this way is opposing to have them deduct the fees from your checking account, offers you protection in case you ever want to cancel their services, but the company won't stop charging you each month. If you keep getting charged but have canceled your membership, you can call your credit card company and stop the recurring charges. Uh, yeah, you can. Uh, you can also do that with a debit card. So I don't know that that one really pulls it off. The best method for recurring charges, if the company that you're dealing with will take it, is PayPal. Because you can log into your PayPal account and cancel a recurring charge like that. You can do it the day before they charge you, and it's done. And it's the, to me, it's the safest way. I get people sometimes to say, uh, you, I want you to charge my PayPal account for MSB. I can't charge your PayPal account for MSB. Or they'll say, you ran a charge on my PayPal account. Can't do it. And they'll say, what? You can't, I can't do it. I, you can only send me money with PayPal. When you set up a subscription with PayPal, you're setting up a predetermined frequency and rate to send money. See, there's no way. I, like, I can know your PayPal email address, right? And it's not like a credit card number. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It, it, you have to buy with PayPal. And for recurring charges, you have to set up the recurring buy. And the buyer's always in control. I, I actually prefer that. And that's why a lot of online people that do recurring charges would prefer a credit card to PayPal. It's actually more of a pain in the ass to stop the charge with a credit card than it is with PayPal. But I can see, like, for gym memberships and stuff like that, the fact that you can call Amex or Visa and immediately go, hey, look, these clowns won't, you know, stop charging me. Just shut it off. Okay. But, again, if you use a debit card with your bank, you should be able to do the same thing. Uh, PayPal purchases. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? A lot of places now accept PayPal as a form of payment. It makes buying things online easier when online companies can't accept credit cards. When you sign up for PayPal, the company will ask you to link your account to your bank account. That is bad. If you ever need to dispute a charge or a, a victim of fraud, you have a hard time getting your money back on your own. Instead, link your account to a credit card. This way, you need to, if, if you need to get your money back, all you have to do is call your credit card company. Instead of waiting around for PayPal or the seller to do anything, you'll have your money back a lot quicker this way. See, credit cards aren't all that bad if you know how to use them properly. Here's the reality. 99 times out of 100, if you file a dispute with PayPal, they will come down on the side of the buyer and they will refund the money within a month. Uh, generally, it's a lot quicker than that, uh, but you will get your money back. But using a credit card dispute, let me tell you something as somebody that um, you know sells a lot through PayPal. Uh, just because you're using a credit card doesn't mean you get your money back right away. It really doesn't because the seller can dispute it. And when I have to deal with that, I'm a lot more of a hard ass. When a charge is disputed, uh, all I ask for somebody that bought from me from PayPal, he goes, I didn't remember it was going to renew or whatever. Just send me an email. I'll give you a refund. Right? When they start disputing it, I, I play hardball when people dispute it because you're calling me a liar. So I, I'm not real big on the last one there. Um, but funding your PayPal account with credit card versus your bank account. Um, you know, if you fund it with a bank account, it, you can only spend as much as is in that account. If you use PayPal a lot, you know it might make sense to have a little small checking account with a few hundred bucks in it that's separate from your main account, and that's probably the easiest solution there. If you do it with your credit card, your PayPal limit is your credit card limit. Uh, you do have some fraud protections and all with credit cards, but they're not as great as this guy makes it sound. I think the biggest reason out of these six that I would be willing to go along with him 
is uh, the home maintenance and improvement and big ticket items with the insurance extensions. But, okay, I'm, I'm sold. There could be a legitimate use for a credit card. I'm still not going to use one ever again for the rest of my life. But I can be open-minded. There you go. Let's take another one. Okay, here's another one. Um, Hi, Jack. I've been listening for a long time and love the show. Thanks for all you do. When I need bulk seeds for grains, popcorn, flax, etc., I buy them for a great price at my local health food store. They are organic, and the germination rates are really good generally. I'm also not sure if you've heard of an ancient wheat called kamut or kazar wheat. If you haven't, it's great for people with wheat allergies. Something like 70% could eat it without any problems. Thanks, Melina. You know, that's interesting because it kind of is backwards from what I tell a lot of people. And they say, well, I want to make money growing stuff in a relatively small location. What should I grow? I always say seeds, right? So, like, if you have, like, you know, two acres that you want to make money on, you're better off being a seed grower for a seed house uh, than trying to sell cucumbers at the farmer's market because seeds sell for a huge premium. Uh, over the food product, and that's what we're looking at. We look at corn and wheat and flax and things like that. You know, a little packet might sell for two bucks, but you might be able to buy a pound for four or five. So it's a good tip. It's a good idea. I think you have to be careful to make sure that what you're buying hasn't cross-pollinated. You're not actually getting hybrid seed that may or may not reproduce true to type. But most of these things that we're talking about here, you're going to get organically grown. Uh, you're probably not going to have much of a problem with that, especially if you plant more than two or three. Um, whenever you plant, uh, you know, let's say 100 square feet of anything, a few of the plants are going to be less than stellar. That's why as we save seed, we don't save seed from those less than stellar plants. So that's always going to be the case. If you're buying seed and you don't know the, the source directly, you, you want to plant out a significant quantity is the only caution I would use there. But good tip, Melina. Uh, thanks for sharing it with us. Do an agricultural one here. Uh, is there a permaculture or hugoculture solution for using big tree stumps? Background. I've recently had some land cleared for a road on my property. The contractor basically pushed over the trees with an excavator and laid them aside. I harvested a good portion of the trunks and limbs for use as firewood. However, the stumps, some with diameters of 30 inches, remain in place. I do have a low area of my yard that I would like to fill in, maybe plant some fruit trees. I'm in USDA Zone 4B. Uh, there isn't a, if there isn't a good solution for these big stumps, I'll probably just uh, I'll probably just drop them behind the berm on my range. Thanks for the show and all you do. Be well, Andy. Okay, any piece of wood buried is basically hugo culture. Uh, so hugo culture, for those that don't know, we take wood, we put it on the ground, and we pile dirt up on top of it. We dig a hole, we stick it in the ground, whatever. That's what we call hugo culture in America. Where it originated in Germany and Austria, hugel bed actually means a high bed. All right, so in, in in Germany or Austria, if we build a great big high bed, maybe two meters tall, that's a hugel bed, and we put woody material in there because we got to do something with it and get rid of it. Well, they learned something as they built these big giant high beds with this woody core that it reduced or eliminated the need for irrigation. Well, when it kind of got picked up and brought over here to America through various sources, such as Paul Wheaton's, Permies.com, uh, and some other places, and people started to learn about it, Americans immediately tried, you know, started changing it and playing with it. You know, if I dig a hole and put a, a cord of rotted fire wood in the ground and bury it over and put a raised bed over, does it work? And son of a gun, it works really good. Or if I make you know, a little two-foot-high raised bed with just a core of some uh, new fresh-cut lumber, does it work? Or fresh-cut logs? Yes, it does. It takes a year or so for that core to sponge up. But, yeah, it, it works really good, and it's all this great organic matter in surface area. So it doesn't matter what we bury. If it's organic matter in the ground, it's going to form that function. 
All right, so these big stumps will do that. And there's a couple of ways to do it. One, you've already pushed them out of the ground. So now we've got to do something. The thing is we're talking about fairly large material here. Um, if I had to deal with that and I truly wanted to do this, I would probably bring an excavator back in. I would scrape four, five, six inches of topsoil off the area that these things are going to occupy. I would dig down deep enough to get them down below the surface, and I would put the earth back on top of them. And then I would cover this new mound with, uh, with topsoil. And I think you would end up with a structure much lower to the ground than if you just try to pile up on top of it, and you'd get an easy answer to where do I get all my, my material from. You get it from the hole. You dig the hole, you put it in, you, and if you did that, I think you would have very good results in a very long-term system uh, as those, those things rotted out. If you could get your excavator operator to kind of move and place them and push them and kind of crack them and break them in certain ways to let more moisture in and speed up the decay process, you might do better. If they're pine... Or cedar, you might have a really long delay between where they start to have effect, especially if they have really heavy sapwood into the root system. That could be an issue, uh, but it, probably not so much. If they're locust, which they're probably not at that size, but if they're black locust or black walnut, forget about it. Uh, that stuff will be in the ground for 50 years before it begins to decay. Just about anything else, yeah, you could do that. That's how I would do it from your description I really want to look at the land. I mean, if you have a really low-lying area, and it's like a big, like, just depression, almost looks like a dry pond, and you want to kind of level that out, and it's so, so much, and you can you have a source of material, and you can fill that whole depression in, and when you bring fill dirt in, you end up with more of a level space? Oh, yeah. That would be just, that would just be awesome. So it all depends on how the land lays. But yes, if you get them covered uh, by, let's say, at least a foot of cover or more and plant into them, they'll grow. You can see this in a forest. If you go through a forest that's been cut in the past and you see a tree stump that was cut you know, 10, 20 years ago, a lot of times there's a new tree growing right up out of the center of it. And it's not the old tree coming back. It's this decayed trunk and a tree grows right out of the rotted core center. And it's a, it's a natural form of this hugel culture phenomenon. On another note, I almost think we need a new name for this. And I'd like to hear from the audience, do you think we'd be doing any disservice to Sepp Holzer, who made this famous, or Paul Wheaton, that helped make this famous in America, if we came up with a new name for what Americans are doing? Because I'm telling you, what we're doing is not hugu culture. I mean, some of us are. What Sepp came and helped Katerina do in Montana, where they built you know four acres of real hugu beds, is hugu culture. But when we put, you know, four or five logs in a stack on the ground and we make a little pile that's, that's three and a half feet tall, it's not really, that's kind of sort of hugel culture there. At least it's a raised bed and it's kind of high. But when we dig a trough and we fill it with wood and then we build a normal sized raised bed on top, that's not hugel culture. When, you know, my wife and I went out last year and we got a whole bunch of wood that would probably be small-sized firewood, but it was just various crap we didn't want it, and we made three things that looked like a campfire. We made three mounds that are about three feet in diameter and about two feet high at maximum. That's not really hugo culture. That's not a high bed, which is what, what the word really means. So those of you that have heard me talk about this before, what would you call it? Would you call it wood culture? Would you call, would you call it... 
organic matter accumulation form. I mean, what word would you use? I'd like to hear some ideas on this. And uh, I, I think maybe it's what we need to do here in America, just like we change other things to mean more what we... Because the reality is, as I look at the projects you guys have done, there's, there's 50 different ways you're doing this, and none of them look like a high bed. Or it's today, you know, one or two percent look like a high bed, which is what the word means. So, you know, in fact, let me give you a little, little background on who culture here. Uh, everybody thinks that, like, okay, Seb Holzer invented this. First of all, no, and Seb never said he invented this, right? So this is this is a technique that's, that's you know really old. Now he lives in the Alps and he builds these terraces and he takes out these crappy trees and he has all these crappy trees and he wants to build high beds. Well, what do you do to get rid of the trees that aren't really good timber wood or anything like that? Well, you put them on the ground and then you build your high bed over top of it. The original reason he did it, from, from what he said in his own presentation, was to get rid of it. And then you had this really great effect of not needing irrigation. Keeping in mind, very temperate climate, lots of rain, good soil, right? So you can't just do this anywhere and always eliminate the need for irrigation. We did it, and we got by in May with a half inch of rain. But by June 1st, our cucumbers tasted like crap because they were so stressed. They grew, but they didn't taste good. We started watering and irrigating with it, and combining the two, we got explosive results. So what we're doing here is like taking this concept and breaking it up into all these little projects that people are doing. One guy wrote in, all he did was take some uh, white birch logs and put them in the bottom of all his five-gallon buckets. And he did some with it and some without it, and he got better results with the ones with it. That's not hugel culture. That's a log in the bottom of a bucket. But it works. So using this organic matter, whether it's a stump or a blaze or you know excess timber cutting scrap or fallen logs or rotten logs or standing dead snags or whatever, and putting it into these types of configurations works really good. And we have enough, we have you know, about two years of, of people really doing it now to prove it out. It's not hoo culture. If it's not hoo culture, what do you think we call it? Love to hear from you today on that. Okay, here's another one for you. What would you say if I told you that a, a judge just acted as a legislator, legislating from the bench? You'd say, ah, oh, that's happened a lot of times, Jack. But what if I told you that he mean, I mean, he really did. Like, completely. Like, imposed a tax on an entire city. Or double the tax rate. Uh, I've talked about Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Even mentioned today, they're they're on the verge of going into bankruptcy. The state capital of Pennsylvania, um, a court order to double the income tax paid by working folks in the financially stressed capital city is the latest twist in a complex five-year crisis that shows no signs of easing soon. Commonwealth Court Judge Bonnie B. Ledbetter ordered City Council last week to increase the earned income tax rate to two percent, of from the current one percent. Since the average wage is about $35,000, a typical wage earner would have to pay $700 a year instead of $350 a year. The judge gave the council 15 days to comply, but the action could be delayed if the council votes to appeal her order. That decision may come this week. Now, there's a whole bunch of rigmarole about whether it should be done and how it's only a one-year temporary thing, because taxes are always temporary, right? And all this other crap about how the city's in distress and whether it should be done. and whether. Here's the thing that's not in the article. Where does a judge get off telling a legislature what they will and won't do with a tax rate? 
I hope you understand the deadly precedent here. This is dangerous. That a judge can just say, yeah, okay, your municipality, your state, your city, your country's going broke, raise taxes. But, but we don't want, the voters don't want, I don't care. Just do it. Comply. That's the word being used here, to comply. Now they can, they can argue it, they can, you know, go against it, and, uh, you know, the mayor says that she's more accepting of it. That's, isn't that nice of her? Isn't that nice of her? First-term mayor Linda Thompson was more accepting of the income tax increase but insisted it wouldn't be permanent. She said her goal would be to eliminate if eliminated if the real if reelected next year to a second four-year term. Mr. Miller has already said he'll run against her and the tax hike is becoming a divisive issue. Um, again, it doesn't matter. It's a court telling a legislator what to do. What part of three branches of government do people not understand? I know this is a city issue, not a national issue or a state issue, but they're all run the same way. You have an executive, you have a legislative, and you have a judicial. The judicial is supposed to determine whether or not what's being done at the executive and legislative are legal and whether or not contracts are being honored and things like that, not tell the legislature that you will double taxes. And what is to stop... The United States Supreme Court then, when this country goes into insolvency, from just telling the Congress that shall increase thy income tax to 60% for everyone. What's to stop it? If it's okay here, isn't it okay there? Am I oversimplifying it? Uh, maybe a little bit. But I just don't think a judge needs to be telling anybody what tax rate needs to be set. And uh, I think if the city council doesn't just basically run this guy out out on a rail. Uh, they're not doing their job for their city. Yeah, if they want to increase the taxes as part of a solution to this problem, that's their prerogative. Um, I think Harrisburg is is really kind of a done deal anyway. They need to restructure things there. They, they do. Um, but if they want to try it, that's up to them. And if they want to be accountable to their electorate for doing so, that's up to them. But a judge determining that you'll just double a tax rate, I don't think so. Not in America. And if I were a Harrisburg uh, legislature, not on my freaking watch. So will you guys spine up for a change? And if you guys want to do this, tell this guy to go screw, reject it, and then go do it on your own. Just to make a point. And just to be accountable. Or will you be cowards and say, oh, we wanted to not do it, but the judge made us. Okay, we'll see. Uh, what kind of politicians do you have there in Harrisburg? Uh, I think we can look at the results so far, and we already know the answer. Let's take another one. Uh, before we do, though, Harrisburg, if you guys want to send uh, the last good people that are willing to live inside your city limits and put up with your crap uh, outside of your city limits, great way to do it. Again, now we'll go ahead and take another uh, email. How about we throw a gun one in here? Um, Wes says, trying to decide between a Glock 26 and a High Point 995 TS. Which would you choose in my situation? I'm interested in both the fact that both of the aforementioned firearms allow me to continue storing 9mm. I currently own a heavy but reliable C9 from High Point as well as a 22 rifle. I'm broke and underemployed college grad with minimal expenses but also an anemic income. The advantages of the Glock seem to be reliability, magazine capacity, and concealability, although I doubt I will ever get my CCL, so this is an advantage is negated. The advantages of the 995TS are reliability, ammunition compatibility, longer range, and most importantly, cost. Should I get the high point now or wait until December when I can afford the Glock? 
Found out about the show about 200 episodes ago on a certain survivalist forum. I figured if those keyboard commandos didn't like you, you must be spitting some serious truths. And I was right. Thanks for all you do, Wes, in the Ozarks. Okay, well, we're looking at two entirely different um, uh, firearms here. And, and we're not looking at that much of a difference in price. A, uh, a 995TS is the uh, is a, a high-point carbine, 10-round magazine capacity, You're gonna have to use with the 995 the factory high point magazines. All the aftermarket magazines suck and have reliability program problems. And the 995 uh, magazines that come from high point, it's one of the most uh, well functioning little ugly weapons I've ever seen in my life. Uh, the 995 TS is basically black with a four power scope. Retails for about $320. Glock 26 retails for about $500. So we're really looking at 180 bucks difference between the two. But what, for those that don't know, is the Glock 26? The Glock 26 is sometimes called the uh, baby Glock. It's a compact uh, Glock handgun uh, that's designed specifically for concealed carry. It's about the size of a Walther PPK, but it's blocky and thicker like a Glock would typically be. If I was going to choose between a Glock 26 and the, and the Walther, uh, well, I'll pay more for the Walther. I think it's worth it. It carries more comfortably. Uh, the thinner profile. I'm, I'm with, with, with handguns for concealed carry. I'm all about the thinnest profile you can get and have the, the, the weapon still function reasonably. But between the Glock 26 and the 995T, uh, 995TS, I just, I mean, it's like asking, do I get a dog or a cat? It, it's so different. It, it's so different. I would say this though. Um, you have, a cheapo C9. They're, the, the, the high point C9 9mm is like this ugly ass piece of crap 9mm handgun that sells for like 120 bucks. that if you run out of ammo you can throw it at somebody and knock them the hell out and probably kill them from the weight of it. But it, it, it even though it's a piece of crap, it works. They function well. I, I, I had one and I, I ended up getting rid of it, but I put 500, maybe 1,000 rounds through it with one malfunction. And I think that runs with anything. Um, the loading, it kind of sucks, though. The, the magazine cuts your fingers and all. Uh, and it's not a good concealed carry weapon. But it is a decent 9mm handgun if you don't have anything else. So you've got that. You've got a 22 rifle. Um, if you're really looking at defense of the home, I, I'm going to tell you that I wouldn't buy either one. If that's what you're going to, you know, defense of the home, not carrying, I would probably look and I would spend less money even and I'd look at something like a, a, a decent uh, sort of stripped down, short barrel, barreled Mossberg shotgun and I think that would be a better gun for home defense. I, I think it, it's better than either one. Um, and it gives you a versatility you don't already have. Yeah, I know you already have 9mm, you're broke, whatever, but take the money that you will save Uh, you'll spend about, a, you know, you can get a decent Mossberg 500, especially if you go to a gun show and buy a used one, 250 bucks, right? So take the extra 100 bucks, put it in ammo, and you've got more versatility. If you're dead set on the two of these, I would go with the Glock. I'd save the money, I go with the Glock, and I'll tell you why. You said you'll probably never get your concealed carry license. You don't know that. You don't know that. And you don't have a good concealed carry handgun, because the C9 isn't. It, just, it's a, it would be a terrible carry gun. It's not about that I think it's not reliable, because I do think it functions quite well. I think it functions better than anybody wants to admit. 
But carrying one, oh my god, it's like carrying two rocks tied together with freaking paracord and, and trying to fit in your butt crack. It's just, it's a terrible ergonomically designed gun. It's not a carry gun. It's a, it's a nightstand gun. And it's fine for that. Um, if you've got the Glock, you've got more reliability. You've definitely got something that will hold its value better if you ever need to sell it. You've got the potential to use it for concealed carry. You've got a much more reliable tool than the C9 overall uh, for home defense. But the problem is you you have another 9mm handgun, and yet you don't have a shotgun yet or a centerfire rifle. And that's why I would look more toward one of those two options. So my real answer is neither. My answer, if you force the issue, is probably the Glock. Though I wouldn't fault anybody for buying a 995. They're, they're a great gun. They do have greater range, but how much range do you need for home defense? And they're not a sniper rifle, no matter how much you kit them up and make them cost three times as much as the Glock with all kinds of crap on them and lasers and whatever. It's, it's a 9mm. It's at best a 100-yard weapon, and it's not really you know supreme for that. It's a 50-yard weapon. You can hit stuff with it. But what kind of energy are you retaining at 100 yards with a 9mm, even out of a 16-inch barrel? Not a lot. Um, especially at 150 yards, now we're getting anemic. So I still don't want to get shot with it, but it's just, you know, I, I would steer you to a good pump-action shotgun uh, with, with some ammunition with it, and I think you could do that for about the same price as the 995TS. And then if you do it right, you can buy something that's really more of a sporting shotgun with, let's say, a youth-length barrel and a full-length stock. You've got a hunting tool and a defensive tool, and you can find, in the words of Dave Canterbury, 12-gauge uh, ammunition in every farmhouse, outhouse, and, and, and convenience store on the planet that sells ammunition, right? So um, that's where I would go with it. And it, it's just, you know, I know you wanted a different answer, like buy this or that, but really, I would look toward uh, a good-use shotgun. And I think that that's a better tool for what you're asking for. If you're going to buy one of these two, I would say don't write off concealed carry in the future and go with a Glock. Let's take another one. Let's do one more and wrap up for today. Here's a political one, so we've covered all the bases today. Um, Jason from Minnesota says, what are your thoughts on voter ID? It will be on our ballot here in November, and I'm conflicted. Uh, I think committing uh, voter fraud is treason, but Ron Paul talks about it being bad. Just curious on your thoughts. On another note, can you shred paper and cardboard uses mulch uh, or put in compost? What about the glossy print-like packaging in magazines? Thanks for the show, uh, Jason. Uh, you can definitely sh shred uh, cardboard and mulch and use it for compost. Uh, the, the, the kind of conventional wisdom is glossy papers and no-no. So just your regular newsprint, regular cardboard are, are, are good to go. Uh, so that's the easy one. Let's get to a little, a little bit more complicated here, uh, voter ID. Um, here's how I feel about voter ID. Voting in this country is a right. That absolutely is the case. But we should protect the rights of individuals. And somebody having a vote cast in their name, sometimes without their knowledge because they just didn't choose, chose not to vote, or because the person's dead, is, is not protecting the right of the individual. So people say, well, you know, there might be some old lady in the middle of Texas somewhere that doesn't have a voter ID card and, or doesn't have a picture ID card and's never had one, doesn't have a birth certificate. Oh, wah, freaking wah. You know, seriously. And then that, this person is such a shut-in in life. They don't have a photo ID, they don't have a birth certificate, they don't have anything. 
but they're going to go out and vote? Do they have a right to? Yes. And I'll tell you the simple solution to this. You pass a voter ID requirement with a provisional ballot um, writer, which would work like this. To vote, to vote, you must provide a photo ID, and if you do that, you vote. And you get, or some, whatever the state decides, because the states do this, because the states run their own voting program. But the state should be able to say, this is what you need in order to be able to prove you are who you say you are when you vote. If that's a photo ID, if it's a birth certificate, an affidavit, whatever it is, you provide it, you're on the register, you show up, you give us that information, you vote. Should you show up without the identification, you go ahead and vote, your ballots go into provisional balloting, which means they sit in a little stack over here, okay? And then, We know that there's an election that's contested, uh, and, and uh, there's uh, uh, 10,000 uh, votes uh, in between winning and losing this particular state, let's say. And in the provisional ballots, we have 5,000 ballots. So if 100% of them went to the other guy that still wouldn't change the election, then they are not necessary. If there's enough of them to swing an election, then they have to be reviewed. And we have to go to each person that was in that little pool and say, did you, is this your ballot? Did you vote? Is this person alive? Right? And that safeguards everybody. You get to cast your vote. If it actually matters, it'll count. But we get reasonable protections. And the people that say, well, so this is disproportionate. It's the poor. and dis You can't do anything in this country anymore without identification. Tell me what you can get done without ID in this country. Please, tell me. One thing, the only thing you can do, you, you, you can vote. Our most sacred right, our most sacred responsibility as members of a republic is the one thing you can do without identifying yourself. You know, at least the Iraqis made the people stick their finger in ink so that one person, even if they committed fraud, could only do it in one place. It, it, it's, it's something that if it's going to matter, it has to have integrity. So... I am for reasonable voter identification requirements. And I would say that a smart state would do the following. Um, what Texas did, and theirs was challenged and overruled by the court, was say, if you don't have photo ID, and you'd like a photo ID, specifically for voting, you don't want one for anything else, we'll give you one for free. Okay? That's what they said. And that wasn't good enough, because you also needed, well, to get your photo ID, you need some proof that you exist, so we need a birth certificate. So if you don't have your birth certificate, you got to go buy a birth certificate. In Texas, it'll cost you 22 bucks to get a copy of your birth certificate. The president can finally find his, I think you can finally find yours. If it's that important for you to vote, but if a, here's what a smart state would do. This is, what a, this is how a smart state would protect themselves from these ridiculous legal challenges in this issue. They'd say you can have a free ID card, and anything you need that we can provide you with to get that ID card is also free. And then here's the other objection. Well, some of them live so far in the middle of nowhere that they're not really able to get out much. How do they get to the polls to vote? I mean, there's a point where you have to draw the line and say, look, this is, this is something that matters. This is something that's important. And while every person should have a vote, that vote should be cast as the person chooses Not as somebody that shows up and votes on their behalf. And if you don't think dead people are voting, you're wrong. If you don't think some guy is being given a list of ten people to go vote as and going and doing it, you're wrong. And let me tell you something that most people won't tell you. It happens on both sides. And it's wrong. And it should be shut down. It should be over. The end. Done. 
And people say, well, when we had the founding of this country, I don't know what Ron Paul's position is on this, but don't think I agree with everything he says just because he's Ron Paul. When we had voting being done at the foundation of this country, it was a much smaller place with a lot less people. And when somebody showed up at the polls, you didn't need voter ID. You didn't need an ID card. Because he was Tom or Frank or Joe. And you knew who he was. At the polling place, anybody that showed up would be known by somebody else. And voter fraud was almost non-existent back then. There was a lot of battles and fights and things over it. People got arguments. But as the nation grew, it became more and more prominent, more and more possible. And it always centers around larger cities. Because that's where people can get away with it. That's where if you can get a list of all the people that are registered to vote and get a list of the people that died that year, you can send people to vote on their behalf. Or if you can get a list of that and you know people aren't home because they're on vacation or just whatever, or you know they don't vote, like if you have their name and you, you get access to that information, and these political groups do this, and they say, well, this person's registered to vote, but it's never voted in their, never showed up, never been ticked off at a register. Because this is what happens when you go to vote if you've never done it. They say, what's your name? And you give them your name. And they look you up. And they say, okay, yeah, you're on our register. And you vote. And the provisional ballot, you know what that's for? When you show up and say, I want to vote, and they go, you're not on the list. You go, I, this is my district. I'm supposed to vote here. They already do this. They already do this. That's the exact scenario it's done in. Somebody shows up to vote, and they say, you're not on the list. And they say, I'm supposed to be on the list. That you vote, and it goes into its own little pile. And that's how these states could make this voter ID thing stick. That if you're going to vote and you don't have photo ID, you're going to go in this little provisional pile. And the only time we're going to have to go into that is if the, the spread of the vote is small enough that the person could have won with the provisional ballots. And then we're going to go make sure that you're really there. And you know why I like that? This is why I like that. Because if they keep doing it, they'll get caught. Because if, if we have like Joe Smith Jr. the third or whatever, and he's registered to vote, and we find out that he's been dead for six months then we can, we can go look for the person that showed up and voted as him. And that person should take their ass to jail. Um, people try to say that they're on the side of liberty and freedom and rights when they oppose this type of legislation. You're only fooling yourself. You're not. You're not. Again, the government does not give us our rights. Its purpose is to protect our rights. And I have a right for my vote to be cast the way that I choose, including if I want to abstain from voting, I have that right too. And no one else should be able to go in and vote on my behalf and lend my one vote in a way that I don't see fit. And those that are like, you know, like everybody should vote or whatever, you're not respecting the people that are choosing to take another path. The whole point of elections in a free democracy is that every citizen has a right in an election, to vote how they choose, including voting by abstention. And that's the only way to have a free republic. And the only way to preserve a free republic is to preserve that right and that freedom. And the only way we can do that is to ensure that no one's taking away somebody else's right to abstain from the vote. That's the truth. That's the reality. In today's day and age, there's no excuse for it. There really isn't. And it's nothing but another banter talking point between right and left to make you choose Coke or Pepsi. Please start to see through these things and realize that no matter who's in charge, when the next election's over, the, the country's headed for a fiscal cliff. You need to prepare yourself, and you need to prepare your family, and you need to realize that none of those people up there right now really give a damn about you. None of them. 
None of them. Zero. They care about themselves. They care about their agendas. That's all they care about. It's up to you to look after yourself, your family, and your community. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of today's, uh, another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.